Um, I thought it was interesting we read Psalm 121, which all you Barry folks should know. Our, that's our Barry Psalm. And then we had three folks from Barry helping lead worship. It's like it's a blend of Mount Barry Church and Seven Hills this morning. Um, I'm glad to be here. As you know, we've been working through the book of Philippians on Sunday morning, and I was asked to jump in on the series, so we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 here in just a moment, kind of working through the letter in an expository manner. And I just want to say up front that, um, you know, good sermons usually have one main point, and the one, that one main point should be clear and memorable and applicable to people's lives. I just want to say up front, I don't have one of those. Well, maybe. I I guess you could divide the passage up into the two questions, where's our confidence and what do we consider gain? But even see, then that's two points. So see, it's, it's not really fitting that rule. So the good news is the Word of God is living and active and not limited to poor quality sermons. So I'm just going to offer some brief comments on several verses and try to work through the passage and trust that maybe there's a a word in there for all of us. So let's begin by uh, asking the Lord to work in our hearts and minds. Our gracious God, we are here before you. We want to give to you now our attention, our minds to be transformed, our hearts to be conformed to the love, grace, and truth of Jesus Pray that my words would be pleasing and acceptable to you, and that you would help us open our eyes to see the superior value and worth of knowing Jesus over against all other grounds for boasting or building our identity. Uh, We need your work in this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read the passage, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, and then start to work back through it. But let's give our attention to the Word of God. He starts here, of course, it is more or less the middle of the book by saying, Finally, (laughs) finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. 
So going back to verse 1, let's talk through this a little bit. He begins by saying, rejoice. And if you've paid attention through the book of Philippians, you'll notice that he says rejoice or uses the word joy a lot. In fact, the two words are used 14 times in this short letter. I mean, that's a four-chapter epistle. And this single word, or it's, it's derivative, rejoice and joy, 14 times. Shows us, and he's writing this letter, as Brian and others have pointed out, from prison. But it's a distinctive of those who are loved by God and who trust in gospel promises to be characterized by joy. At least it ought to be. And then he says that he's going to say some things that they already know. They've already heard some of this stuff before, but it's okay for him to repeat himself because that actually is good for us. And it's, he says, it's safe for you. If you think about it, we are creatures that learn by repetition. That's how things become a consistent part of us. Think about anything that's worth doing, any sort of quality or character or ability you want to have, you have to repeat it over and over again so that it can become second nature. Think about if you're learning to speak a new language, learning to play an instrument. How many hours do you spend practicing that instrument over and over again so that you can look at things and to play it becomes second nature. And in many ways, living as a Christian requires a whole lot of repetition in our lives, of repeating truths to ourselves so that they shape who we are. Certain Christian practices like coming to worship and prayer, these things have a formative effect on us the more we invest in them. And any single, any one single time practicing or uh, pursuing those things doesn't necessarily create the second nature and it just feels like work. But over time, we see that the effort is not wasted. And no effort put into knowing and understanding God is wasted, even if a single moment's devotion doesn't feel like it's doing that much. <clears throat> Over a lifetime, it accomplishes what we call second nature. We call it second nature because a lot of these good qualities don't come to us naturally, but they can become second nature. So in this sense, Paul's saying, I want you to hear stuff again. This is probably good for those of you who've been around church a long time. You've probably heard messages on Philippians, or you've read through Philippians. And when I just read this passage, you thought, oh yeah, I know that. I'm not going to get anything out of this sermon. I know I've thought similar things before. So maybe let's just take Paul's word to heart. <clears throat> maybe we need to be reminded of some good stuff. Verse 2, it says, look out for the dogs. Notice that's not D-A-W-G-S. That's just... D-O-G-S. Paul's not against U-G-A or anything. He wouldn't be, right? Well, who are these dogs, these evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh that Paul's saying to look out for? Well, if you know some stuff about Paul's life and the history of his ministry, sometimes he encountered um, Jewish converts to Christianity, like he was. He was a Jewish convert to Christianity, who tried to impose certain things on the Gentile converts. Uh, specifically, there were some key things that the Jewish people really uh, treasured and elevated as identity markers. And one of those was circumcision. It's like, we know we are the people of God because we are circumcised people. And sometimes tried to say, you Gentile people, if you're going to be real Christians, you can't just have faith in Jesus. You need to also embrace this aspect of the Jewish law and maybe some others. And then you'll know you're the real thing. Paul is very much opposed to this. In fact, you get the apostles' strongest language in the New Testament when anyone's trying to add something to faith in Jesus 
as a requirement for salvation. He reacts strongly to that stuff. In the book of Galatians, he says, somebody wants to try to do that, let them be accursed. This is not good. And when he thinks about the temptation to do it in his own life, he says those things are rubbish in this passage, even though they're good things. He says they cannot equate or be added to or be sufficient as a grounds for boasting. Is this thing on? Okay, all right. Just making sure. <laughs> all right, so he's saying essentially to watch out for people who want to put burdens on you, who want to add some unnecessary rule to Christian living for the sake of a misplaced confidence, for the sake of you being able to say, your confidence comes from you belong to this particular church, or you know that you read this translation of the Bible, or you've been baptized in this particular fashion, or you spend this much time a day in prayer or scripture reading, or add whatever other rule you might want to add. He's saying, watch out for those burdens. It's a misplaced confidence, and that's a key issue here. In verse 3, he says that we who believe, that me, we who believe are the true circumcision. What does that mean? He's going to say these outward physical marks or conformity, especially to the law of Moses, are not what mark out the true people of God. But he says true circumcision is a matter of the heart, and it's something that Jesus does, not something that we accomplish by our work or achievement or outward conformity. We're truly marked as Christ's own by God's Spirit, not by physical marks. And so our confidence, as he says, must be in Christ Jesus. As he says here, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's speaking specifically of that act of circumcision. So in opposition to those who want to impose the Jewish law on Gentile converts, Paul asserts, It's actually a funny way to argue. He uses this wonderful rhetorical flourish as a way of saying none of that stuff matters. And he doesn't say that because he can't live up to it. Sometimes we will shy away from anything that sounds legalistic because we can't live up to it. You know, we say, oh, we shouldn't be legalistic because I'm aware that I'm not very good. But Paul's case is very different. He actually can live up to it. He's actually, he's not, so he's not rejecting this because it's too hard for him. In his mind, notice his own assessment of his life is that he's got all the boxes checked that a person might look to for security, for assurance, for confidence before God. He says, yeah, he was circumcised according to the law in the eighth day. He is an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the only tribes loyal to the sons of David. You want me to switch out? All right. Okay, is this working better? <laughs> All right. All right, I'm going to start over. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> All right. So I was saying, <laughs> in Paul's case, before becoming a Christian, it wasn't that he lacked all of these good things and couldn't measure up, and so he rejects them. He rejects them on different grounds because he actually could live up to them. He says that according to righteousness under the Jewish law, he was blameless. 
according to his own conscience and, and from man's point of view, he had it. But then he goes on to say it's essentially worth nothing and throws it away. <clears throat> says he's willing to lose all of that because of a greater value, something that has a surpassing worth, as he says in verse 8. So Paul has a better grounds for confidence and a richer gain. One of the things Paul seems to be maybe intentionally doing is echoing a passage from Jeremiah uh, where the prophet talks, where God speaks to the prophet saying people should not boast in these good things that they have. Let's look at the passage. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The passage is saying there is no glory in wisdom, strength, or riches, three things that people might commonly glory in or get their identity from make the grounds for their confidence in life. And God says, you know, these are three good things, obviously. We're told to pursue wisdom in other places. But in terms of the ground of our being, our confidence before God and others, he says that should come from something else. Your glory, your life, from understanding and knowing me, says the Lord. Uh, I was looking at... uh, Jewish translation of Jeremiah called the Tanakh, and it makes a little bit more clear what is meant by understand and knows me. And they translate the passage as saying, let him not glory in this, but let him glory in earnest devotion to me. Earnest devotion. So it's not just simply knowing about God, having good theology, or being able to talk about you know, Calvinism or something like that versus Arminianism. It's that you have an earnest devotion to God. Now, and so Paul has applied that same principle to Jesus. He's saying, let your boast be in knowing Christ. He says, that's what I want to know in my life. That's what's of a supreme value. And that's wonderful. Uh, For most of us, when I read Paul's sort of resume here, spiritual resume, I don't entirely relate to it. I mean, in one way, because I'm not Jewish and haven't been formed in the same way. But also, and I think maybe most of us, can't really share Paul's ground for boasting. When I think about my life, it seems to have lots of attempts at doing good and being right, but also lots of failure. And so I appreciate Paul being willing to throw away having perfect legal righteousness for the sake of Christ. That certainly shows its value because he had the thing that I'm so often working for but failing to get. But maybe you relate more to Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector when he tells the story of this Pharisee, which Paul says that's what he was at one time. The Pharisee goes in to pray, and instead of talking to God about God, he talks to God about himself. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I don't do all of these bad things. Instead, I do all these good things. In fact, I do extra good stuff that's not even required in the law. And then Jesus says, the other guy, the tax collector, couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Maybe we can relate to that guy even more than Paul. 
The good news is that in that parable, Jesus says, that man who humbled himself is the one who went home righteous, who got the righteousness that Paul is giving up all of his good stuff too to get. The righteousness that comes by faith, one that doesn't trust in one's own goodness, but cast oneself on the mercy of God. And there we find mercy. It seems like Paul is saying, you know, whether we have legal righteousness according to the law or we don't, it doesn't matter. You should give it up either way. You see, we need a different grounds for our confidence, a different grounds for daily assurance, something that's rooted in the strong, secure love of God to keep us. I wanted to illustrate this by showing a, a clip. I figure I'm at Seven Hills. Brian does this. I can do this too. All right. He's more culturally aware than I am. So mine just come from my life and hobbies. Uh, so this is a clip from Doctor Who. All right. And let me say a little thing real quick about Doctor Who. If you're not familiar with the story, you know, the doctor, he travels through time and space. And he's always rescuing, saving people, whole worlds uh, because of his love for the universe, his love for the world, his love for all people. In fact, the unique thing about the doctor is that he even tries to save the bad guys in any given episode. And he usually travels with a human companion. Uh, He's uh, not human. He's uh, a time lord from the planet Gallifrey. You don't need to know that stuff. Anyway, he has two hearts. Instead of coming with a gun to kill, he comes with a screwdriver to fix things. He always has a, a human companion or two with him, and they become naturally very close. And in this clip... It's a clip between Clara and the doctor, and they've been together for a long time. She's been traveling with him for a long time. They're very close friends. But in this scene, she's done something that she's ashamed of. She has betrayed the doctor in a bad way. But it just so happens that even though she's betrayed him, she desperately needs his help. And so she's asking him to help her. And I want you to see the doctor's reaction. So we can play the clip. You're going to help me. Well, why wouldn't I help you? Because what I just did, I just... You betrayed me. You betrayed my trust. You betrayed our friendship. You betrayed everything that I've ever stood for. You let me down! Then why are you helping me? Why? Do you think I care for you so little that betraying me would make a difference? may not if you couldn't hear she's saying will you help me and he says of course i will help you why wouldn't i she says, because of what i just did i betrayed you and he's like yes that was a painful thing she says well, why are you helping me then he says do you really think that i care for you so little that betraying me would make a difference i remember when i first watched the episode i was struck in my own heart about how this was true of god's love for us. You think I care for you so little that betraying me would make a difference? You think of Simon Peter's story. Isn't that his story? He's there on the beach with Jesus after the resurrection. He could be saying, why are you here with me? Why am I getting to share breakfast with you? And Jesus is essentially saying the same thing. You think betraying me, I care for you so little, betraying me would make a difference. You see, that kind of strong, secure love is what creates a proper confidence for us before God and before other people. That we don't have to be working to earn that kind of favor, 
because Clara couldn't earn that from the doctor. We cannot earn that from God. It has to come from his own heart, his own resources. If God's commitment to us was dependent on our commitment to him, we would all be lost. So back to Paul in verse 7 and 8. He's saying we can have no confidence in our own spiritual resume or curriculum vita or our status or our work or our possessions. These things are fragile, inferior. They cannot actually do for us what we want them to do. And what are they going to say to God at the end of the time? Look at my resume, all the things that I achieved. If the Lord were to say, yeah, that's fantastic. I was actually doing other things, but it's nice that you were able to accomplish so much. And it actually doesn't even do for myself what I hope it will do. Cause me to rejoice and have the joy talked about in this letter. I can remember when I was working on my PhD and I was thinking, man, once I get, once I finish this, I will have arrived, I'll have everything that I need, I'll feel good, I'll be at peace, I'll probably be happy the rest of my life. Yeah, I really thought stuff like that. Anybody relate to those kinds of things? When I get this particular job, or if I have these kids, or whatever, I'll be happy the rest of my life. And almost immediately after completing that, I had this massive anxiety that I needed to do more. It was like, okay, now that's complete. Now I've got to publish stuff. I've got to get some articles done. I've got to write a book. I've got to get some book reviews, all that stuff. And the thing is never good enough. It's always being compared to other people and never results in security. Well, Paul wants to say that gaining Christ is the answer. Having him, that's the true treasure. That's where you get everything that you were pursuing otherwise without having to pursue it at all. Christ is the only secure ground. It gets us off the treadmill and allows us to run free for real. I was thinking about this this week and thinking about how it seems to me that most people who like to run, I think if you're one of those people who likes to run, it seems that most people who like running don't really like running on a treadmill and would rather go running outside in God's country or whatever. I mean, both of these, running outside, let's say out at Barry somewhere, or running on a treadmill, both of them require effort, but one rejuvenates, recreates. One sucks the life out of you. One increases your sense of well-being, and another wears you down. Yeah, I mean, look at people when they get off of a treadmill. Have you ever seen anyone look happy when they get off a treadmill? And think about when you go to these big festivals for 5Ks and 10Ks. It's like we're having a festival to go wear yourself completely out. And when people are done, it's everybody's happy, you know, it's celebrating. You know, the endorphins are shooting off like crazy. You know, we love this. I was sharing this analogy with Jeremy Marshall earlier this week, and he added the insight that running on a treadmill also gets you nowhere. And that's the truth. You can run there for an hour, and you will have gone nowhere. And I'm comparing this to trying to gain righteousness by our efforts versus receiving them as a gift. You can labor and labor all your life, and then you get off and realize you were just on a treadmill and didn't go anywhere. There's no righteousness there. Let me say something about this uh, righteousness thing that Paul talks about. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a little bit of a technical discussion, but I want to make some sense of it. 
By righteousness, I understand Paul to be speaking about a kind of status before God. A status within the covenant. That righteous equals in that covenant people. Unrighteous would be outside that covenant people. It's a status before God. How does God regard you? It's not so much about what's true of us on the inside, our personal qualities or abilities, but something that God says about us. And Paul is saying you can either strive for a law-keeping righteousness or you can receive a Jesus-keeps-you righteousness. Let me try to say it again. You can either strive for a law-keeping righteousness and get that status that way, or you can receive a Jesus-keeps-you righteousness, a status that depends on Jesus' own strength and work. Which would you rather have? You can see why Paul says that one is more valuable than the other. Now, you may also be familiar, if we could have like verse 8 and 9, is that possible to pull up there? Um, Through faith in Christ Jesus. You might be familiar aware that there's a little bit of a technical discussion on uh, here at the bottom. Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that which comes through faith in Christ. There's an internal debate between New Testament scholars as to whether this should be translated that which comes through either faith in Christ or through the faithfulness of Christ. Through the faithfulness of Christ. And it doesn't really matter. Different translations will translate it different ways. <clears throat> it, both translations work linguistically and both work theologically. And they actually, it, it may strengthen the point to see it as saying through the faithfulness of Christ. Because what part of the point is that something was accomplished by Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. That was faithfulness to God. That was righteous life. And that gets applied to his people who trust in him, who have faith in him. So it goes on to say that it is, uh, depends on faith in verse 9. Let's go to the next verse. Yeah, That depends on faith. So you have faith said there twice. <clears throat> it's all a way of saying there is a positive, secure status before God that can only be received by faith, that is, by believing trust. It was accomplished by the faithfulness of Jesus, and you can stake your life on it. This is Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. It comes up so often in his works and is so important for Protestant theology. For God to justify us is to, let me use another, make up a word, is to righteousify us. If God is justifying us, he's righteousifying us. The words are the same in Greek, justice, justify, and righteousness. It means he is regarding us as righteous, in the right, vindicated. It means we are in God's family. That's our status. So if you have a righteousness that comes by faith, you can say this. I am a member of God's family. I did not earn it. I could not earn it. I've been given this as a gift. This standing comes to us despite our lack of personal holiness or virtue. It depends on Jesus himself. So that for Paul, having Jesus is having everything. Having Jesus is the ultimate gain. It's the best thing about us. The most important thing about us. You know, so like on my resume, I list all these things that I think are important about me. But I don't usually say on there, 
I belong to Jesus. When in fact, that really is the most important thing about me. And the thing that would gives meaning to everything else. And that without it, none of the other stuff matters much at all. And it's not that having a strong resume is a bad thing. It depends on how it functions in one's life. Is it the basis of my confidence? Is it valued as my most important gain? Paul wants to say to us that the ultimate gain, the ultimate joy-producing blessing in life is this, to have Jesus as one's Lord, Savior, and treasure, this thing that's surpassing worth, to live faithfully in light of that gift, and then to be raised to new life on the last day. In the last two verses of the passage, uh, where Paul talks about wanting to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, sharing in his suffering, you see that belonging to Jesus hasn't like quenched any desire or effort to pursue holiness and goodness, to pursue Jesus. In fact, it's set, it sort of set him free, gets off the treadmill, and can start running free and happy. There's newly motivated effort. But that effort is not put towards securing a status. It's put towards knowing Jesus fully. That's what he wants to do. You you so treasure and prize Jesus. You you want to put your effort. You feel compelled into wanting to know him as fully as possible, even to the point of sharing in his suffering. So that we're conformed from the inside out. So just in conclusion... Paul says the ultimate joy-producing blessing is to have Jesus as one's Lord, Savior, and treasure, to live faithfully in light of that, to be raised to new life at Christ's return. So the main question that's upon us in reaction or in response to this passage is, is it true for us too? I think that to explain and talk through the passage is not all that difficult. To understand it is not all that difficult. What's difficult is to share Paul's attitude, to share Paul's conviction about these things, to think about our life in the same way he's thinking about his own life. And for that, we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us. Listening to a sermon, talking about these things even, doesn't make it happen. I felt this way this week as I was thinking through the passage, talking about it, saying, okay, this all makes sense in my head. I just want it to be true of me in my heart. And I feel there's a disconnect. There's tension. I need the power of the Spirit to work in me. And I think that's probably true for all of us. And so I want us to wrap up by just taking a moment, a silent prayer, to ask the Holy Spirit to do just that, to open our eyes in such a way that we see the one that, is, that has surpassing worth and value, to ask him to lay claim to our heart and mind so that nothing compares to him, and that in the end we are compelled to pursue knowing him fully <clears throat> with our life. Let's pray together.
gracious Lord, you said that apart from you we could do nothing. You called on us to be to abide in you, to be satisfied with your love each day, that this would do for us what all of our striving is trying to get for us. Would you please unburden every heart here with an assurance of your promise that you're the one who makes who will keep us in a righteous standing in spite, despite ourselves. And I pray that being set free, we also find ourselves newly motivated, inspired, to value you as you deserve, to seek you with our life's energy. And I pray that ultimately that causes us to reflect you into our world, to help people see we we know the thing, the one that's of surpassing worth and value. The one who can free us from the treadmill of life and set us free. We ask in Christ's name, amen.